Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Thanks to wider broadcast deals and streaming sites, sports fans the world over can catch up on the best of global games such as football. But here's the paradox. All that choice means viewers have dwindling attention spans. And that is driving change in the sports themselves. And the designation of halal usually has to do with foods. But in Indonesia, the world's most populous Muslim nation, lots of manufacturers are angling for halal status, a marketing-friendly blessing for products ranging from pianos to sex toys. First up, though... Britain's parliament begins its work this week with distinct feelings of déjà vu and anticlimax clinging to the House of Commons. Over the weekend, Prime Minister Boris Johnson had hoped to persuade members of parliament to vote for his fresh Brexit divorce deal with the European Union. He told members it was high time to get Brexit done. The House will need no reminding that this is the second deal and the fourth vote uh, three and a half years after the nation voted for Brexit. And during those years, friendships have been strained, families divided, and the attention of this House consumed by a single issue that has at times felt incapable of resolution. But one recently ejected member of Mr. Johnson's Conservative Party had other ideas. Sir Oliver Letwin worried that if the House passed the motion to approve Mr. Johnson's deal, all the other necessary legislation might not get through in time for Britain's current deadline to get out of the EU in 10 days. The Prime Minister has a strategy. I fully accept that, and I accept that it is rational in its own terms. It is that he wants to be able to say to any waverers, it's my deal or no deal, vote for the implementing legislation, or we crash out. Sir Oliver was highly sceptical about the strategy. But we can't be sure that such a threat from the Prime Minister would work. So he introduced an amendment to the motion that it couldn't be voted on before that other legislation had been passed. And he won. The eyes to the right, 322. The nose to the left, 306. That triggered a recent law called the Ben Act that meant Mr Johnson was obliged to ask for an extension to the Brexit deadline. It seems increasingly unlikely that Britain will leave on the currently scheduled date. I think it's extremely unlikely. Everything would have to go right for Boris, and I don't think everything will go right. Adrian Wooldridge writes Badgett, our column on British politics. Saturday was supposed to be Super Saturday. It was the moment when MPs would get the chance to vote on Boris Johnson's deal, and Downing Street thought they might just have it in the bag. But everything was torpedoed by Sir Oliver Letwin, who presented an amendment. His 
was a piece of subterfuge, actually. He was terrified that if they voted for Boris's meaningful vote, then that would increase the chances or create a chance for Britain to leave the EU without a deal. Because at the moment they voted for the meaningful vote, then the Ben Act would disappear uh, and the Ben Act forced Boris to ask for an extension at 11 o'clock that evening. Why did he do that? It was about uh, a group of Spartans, committed Eurosceptic MPs known as Spartans, who many MPs, uh, uh, particularly Sir Oliver Letwin, feared might vote in favour of the meaningful vote, then scupper it so that they projected uh, Britain, as it were, out of the EU without a deal. So against all odds, Mr. Johnson struck a new deal, but uh, essentially the people most committed to getting out by October 31st posed a risk somehow, and they've been thwarted by this Letwin They were perceived to pose a risk by Sir Oliver Letwin and his supporters. Um, And that's why he proposed this amendment. And that's why this amendment was voted through, because people didn't trust the system to be safe. They were worried about leaving the EU without a deal, either because of the, you know, the peculiarities of parliamentary voting or because certain people decided actually to, to, to scupper the deal and project Britain out of, out of the EU. So it was an insurance policy which Sir Oliver Letwin put in place deliberately. And it's quite interesting that when now he's put it in place, he has said he will vote for the deal. And you were in Parliament on Saturday? Yes, and the atmosphere in Parliament was very interesting because we got there roughly at uh, 8.30 to 9.00 in the morning, and people were expecting this great Saturday extravaganza, this vote. But then uh, Downing Street became very, very worried about the Letwin Amendment, very worried that it would get through, and very worried that they would look foolish as a result of it getting through. So instead of arriving to a parliament in which uh, everybody was waiting for this dramatic vote, we arrived into a parliament in which the government, in the sort of huddle that, 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 that is created just outside the, the press gallery, was briefing heavily uh, about how this amendment would go. So the whole day, from the very first moment that one arrives in, in Parliament, shifted from being about the uh, Boris's meaningful vote to being about the amendment. So the point here was essentially to get the, the Ben Act enacted and to get this, this letter sent to the EU. So a request for an extension has gone in. Indeed. Boris Johnson said that he would die in a ditch before sending this letter. He's not dead. He may be in a ditch, I don't know, but he's not dead. But he sent the letter in a very begrudging way. What he did was to photocopy the letter that was included in the Ben Act and sent this photocopy off, probably a smudged and bad photocopy. He also sent a letter of his own saying that he thought any delay would be bad and dangerous both for Britain and the EU. But legally, he has done begrudgingly what he needed to do. And the EU can now, if it chooses, grant Britain an extension. And we will know more about that in a week or so's time. And this chicanery with the letter is just to prove to his base that he's doing his level best. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what can happen in Parliament today if the, the, the extension may or may not be coming from the European Union? This Letwin bill has been, has been passed. Mr. Johnson has been defeated once again, or at least stalled. What happens now? Mr. Johnson will bring the motion that he was going to, 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 to bring on Saturday and pulled after the, the, the Letwin Amendment went through. Uh, and that's basically what we mean by a motion is an agreement in principle to leave the EU on the terms that was agreed between um, Boris Johnson and his European counterparts. So it's a, a, a general sense that we accept the outline of this deal. 
uh, and Parliament will vote on whether they accept the outline of this deal. Um, unfortunately, it's not likely to be uh, admitted by the Speaker because the Speaker has a principle that you can't keep asking the same question twice. He stopped Theresa May from doing that in the past. So the likelihood is probably less than 50% that he will be allowed to bring this motion. If he's not allowed to bring this motion, then instead what you have is the second reading of the withdrawal bill tomorrow. And that's a bill, which means that there's lots of detail, lots of nitty gritty about what exactly we will be doing. So we move from a motion in principle to agree something to detailed legislative work and whenever you get detailed legislation, you have lots and lots of room for nitpicking, lots of room for objections. You begin to scrutinize rather than to, 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 to accept in principle. And Labour has also made it clear that it will attach at least two amendments. One is that we should have a second, a second referendum. And the second is that we should remain in the customs union, which, of course, voids the whole, the whole of, of, of Boris Johnson's strategy, which is to remove us from the customs union. So instead of a world in which you're thinking about the very principles that were at the heart of the agreement between um, Boris Johnson and the European Union and voting broadly on whether you accept or don't accept those principles, you're then moving on to a world in which you're talking about legislation uh, and what that does is to slow the momentum, which is crucial to getting anything through this very disparate group of people. And secondly, it creates a much higher hurdle, uh, the hurdle being all about the detail of legislation rather than the broad principle of what you agree with. So we've gone from a, a Saturday consideration of kind of the, uh, the the withdrawal deal in the round, and it seems that we're heading towards a situation where that can essentially be be unpicked. Um, and that that is going to slow things down tremendously. It's clear what uh, Boris Johnson and his government want. It seems clear what uh, the opposition Labour Party wants, or at least how it wants to change the way things are going. What about the people? What do the British people want? Well, the British people are incredibly divided about this. Um, Remainers want to remain. Uh, leavers want to leave. Um, the people in the middle are very frustrated. They want an end to this nightmare. Um, it's dominated politics, it's divided politics, it's divided families, and they want never to hear the word Brexit again. So, and that was something which was very much playing um, to, to, on, on Boris's side. You know, on Saturday, one of the things he said, we've got to get this nightmare over, we've got to get beyond this. Um, but we can't. Somebody said that it's like saying, I want to get on with giving birth to the child so I can go back to the good old days of being able to lie in bed all the time and read novels and have a relaxing time. Once the child is born, it's not going to happen. It's going to be more and more debate about Brexit. I'm afraid we've signed our, our fate. We've got to talk about Brexit for years and years and years. Adrian, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. 
What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Over the past few weeks, fans from all corners of the world have been gathering in Japan for the Rugby World Cup. This weekend, the four remaining sides will battle for a place in next Saturday's final. But the teams aren't the only ones in competition. Rugby itself is fighting to prevail in the global sports market. And increasingly, it's winner takes all. The competition in the global sports market is tougher than ever before because of a combination of dwindling attention spans, fans being more fickle than in the past, alternative entertainment options, new technologies and globalization, which means it's easier than ever both for sports to gain new fans and to lose existing ones. Tim Wigmore writes about sports for The Economist. So we see sports aggressively expanding into regions in which they previously had very little support, which poses a risk to the sports that were previously dominant in those regions. A new report from the consultancy PwC says the overall revenue growth in the global sports market is on the decline. So increasingly, sports are directly in competition and the global sports market is becoming more of a zero-sum game. One sport that definitely isn't in trouble is football. It remains the world's favorite game and has grown its overall market share since 2000. So which sports are at risk? So the concerns are for the middle class of sport, and that tends to mean sports which have a more regional appeal and also sports which aren't necessarily the biggest sport in any particular area. So they're spread a little bit thinly and therefore you know, the greater attention being given to the most prominent sports, putting them under pressure. So athletics is one sport now that's under a lot of pressure At the slightly lower end of the spectrum, there are insiders talk about worries for the long-term future of sports like swimming, of badminton, and higher up, actually, baseball, you know, famously America's game, it is under a fair amount of pressure as well, because a sport like baseball is still very strong in the U.S., but the U.S. sports market being what it is, it's maybe difficult for it to grow further there in terms of revenue and fans because it's a very mature sports market, and it hasn't necessarily expanded into other territories, anything like as successfully as basketball, its rival in the US. And why do you suppose fans are losing interest? Why are attention spans dwindling? So the change in attention spans means that the so-called stickiness of viewers, the number of minutes of a game that someone watches, that's typically falling by around 3% per year, according to research from the consultancy Future Sport. And that means basically viewers are being more fickle about what they stay interested in. So the tradition was that, you know, you might follow a sports team and you might devotedly watch every minute of all of their games of your favourite teams. Well, that really is changing. And because viewers simply have more choice than ever, so they both have choice to watch alternative sports or other entertainments. And also in countries where they might have followed the domestic league, now they don't really do that as much because they can follow, say, the best football. There is a bit of a paradox there in that there is so much more choice and yet people are willing to dedicate shorter and shorter amounts of time to it all. I mean, what does that mean for sports more broadly? There's a shared concern across a range of sports from cricket, baseball, even basketball, American football, about the length of games and the pace of play. And the idea here is that rather than accept the natural pauses, either of literally nothing happening in a game or the game going along at a slow pace with less tension, now viewers will just think, yeah, this is boring and they'll switch off. So you think that one of the solutions here is simply to make for shorter games, change the formats of the games even? 
Not necessarily. So that's happened in cricket, and they've had a new format devised in 2003 called T20, which is 20 overs rather than 50, and that's worked extremely well. But we've seen some other sports like golf and tennis experiment with this and sometimes it's looked inauthentic. It's sort of alienated existing fans without winning the new fans. So what's happened with cricket is a good example of how sports can adapt. But I think it's also dangerous to think of it as a sort of simple template which other sports can all replicate. So what other options are there for sports beyond messing with the formula? To take matches to new countries is a very important step, and a number of sports have done that. Indeed, all three main US sports league are playing or have played games in London in 2019 alone. The Olympics and the World Cup are both very important devices to attract new fans because of the really unprecedented exposure you get. And it's also a way of untapping funding from advertisers and even from governments. Crucially, Investing in grassroots programs, which sounds simple, but you find with quite a lot of sports, they seem to take a sort of top-down approach at the expense of bottom-up. And by that, I mean they would just plonk certain high-profile events in countries and expect that to do all the work without doing you know, the heavy lifting, which is in schools, it's building facilities, and so on. And in recent years, more sports are actually recognising the women's game is now a way of them growing their revenue and winning new fans. Football, which has already long been the market leader, amongst team sports in the men's game has recognized this increasingly in recent years. The investment is probably not what it should be, but the Women's World Cup this year in France had a total combined TV viewing audience of over 1 billion. One of the interesting things in women's team sports, it's often easier for emerging countries to rise quickly than in men's team sports, perhaps because there's been less historical investment. So from this list of strategies expanding into new territories using big tournaments and the grassroots hard work, what sports do you think best exemplifies deploying all of those tools? There's no simple template to how to grow a sport. It depends on the specifics, the nuances of the sport, depends on the markets they're trying to expand into. But when you put that all together, I think the sport that's done best in recent years to cling on to football's coattails is basketball. So until the 1970s, they didn't have any overseas players at all in the NBA, which is the main basketball league in America. They had 36 overseas players from 24 countries in 2000. Today, they have 108 from 42 different countries. And indeed, According to PwC, the consultancy, basketball has pitched to grow by more than any other sport apart from football in the years to come. So I think the lesson from both basketball and football is the importance of taking important matches abroad and also of developing stars in new countries. We've seen in basketball in China, they were ahead of other sports in targeting China. So they had offices there from 1992 and they've since played a lot of pre-season matches, exhibition matches there. And crucially, they've built a number of academies and courts and the Basketball World Cup was just staged in China for the first time ever. And this has all helped to create a situation where you're more likely to produce stars from China. And they had the great fortune of Yao Ming emerging, who was one of the best basketball players of his generation. He joined the NBA in 2002. Sports stars don't come bigger than this man, and not simply because he's seven foot six. Yao Ming is the symbol of China's lofty Olympic ambitions. And I think that's a very interesting template for other sports. So you get the kind of initial investment and you get it at a grassroots level. And then you have homegrown players starting to develop from that market and it becomes self-perpetuating. Thank you very much for your time, Tim. Thanks very much. Pleasure.
In Islam, the designation of halal suggests that something is permissible, that it isn't in conflict with religious strictures. Most of the time, it's used in reference to foods or how animals are slaughtered. But in Indonesia, some things that you definitely shouldn't eat, such as refrigerators or laundry detergent, are starting to be classified as halal. Yvonne Wudiatuti is an auditor at the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Assessment Agency. She reviews applications of companies hoping that their products will be deemed halal, which means that their consumption or use doesn't break any of the strictures of Islam. Charlie McCann is our Southeast Asia correspondent. And most of the applications that Yvonne receives are from food and drink companies who want consumers to know that their products are free of pork and alcohol. Except that Yvonne is now getting a growing number of applications from companies which don't actually make edible products. So these would be companies who make pianos, for instance, or even sex toys. And why are these businesses worried about getting their pianos and sex toys certified as halal? Well, she hastened to explain to me that it's not that CEOs are becoming more pious. It's just that Indonesia is home to more Muslims than anywhere else, and these Muslims consume more certified halal products than anywhere else. So CEOs spy opportunity. So in essence, getting a halal certification is just might be a, a bit of a, a marketing boost in a, in a market economy where being halal is so widespread already. Yeah, because in fact, the number of products that received halal certifications actually quadrupled between 2012 and 2017. The Indonesia Ulema Council, which is a government-funded body that issues spiritual guidance to the devout and runs the agency that Yvonne works for, has approved a fridge, a frying pan, sanitary pads, cat food, and even laundry detergent. And so is this what the market wants? Do people find anything funny about uh, approving these kinds of products as halal, or, or is, is everybody see this as a, a marketing ploy? Some people are absolutely amused by this. When in 2018, Sharp, which is a Japanese electronics firm, announced that it was producing a fridge, uh, which had been certified halal, that news was met with much mockery. But um, Yvonne explained that actually plastic in fridges can contain pig derivatives, um, which is to say it could have been haram. So in fact, the fact that the fridge was certified halal is really useful for Muslim consumers who want to be reassured that they're not going to be using haram products. So that's an example where it did matter, but it seems there are lots of products that are at least going for this that don't really matter. I mean, is there any limit? Is, is everything going to end up as halal? Absolutely not. Yvonne said that uh, the applications um, for uh, the producers of the piano and the sex toy got rejected. So as the number of rather more unusual applications landing on Yvonne's desk has grown, the Ulema Council has issued new regulations to guide auditors like her. So these regulations say that any product related to food preparation or prayer is eligible for certification because pianos and sex toys aren't related to either of those two categories. They got rejected. However, on October 17th, a new law requiring all consumer goods to be certified as halal comes into effect. Indonesia's lawmakers have passed this law because they're hoping to not only appear pious, but also boost exports of halal certified goods. This makes Yvonne's job a little bit tricky, but she suspects that in practice, the law is only going to be applied to certain products. That's just an assumption though. 
Thanks very much for joining us, Charlie. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.